from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. These are, these are vanishing resources. So, I mean, I think it's really true to Larry's um, passion that he chose not only to find a site where this collection could, could breathe and spread out, but in that act also preserve something that would have been torn down I and mean, it was going to be torn down, this foundry. So. I'm Shula Newman filling in for Sarah Fenske. Larry Giles was a force for architectural preservation. In the 1970s, he started the St. Louis Architectural Art Company. St. Louis was tearing down a lot of old buildings, and Giles would buy those materials, then sell them to rehabbers in the city. His passion for the work didn't stop with his own business. Giles is also the founder of the National Building Art Center in Sauget, Illinois. It's the nation's largest collection of building artifacts. Giles died last month at the age of 73 after battling leukemia. And today we're going to talk about his life, his legacy, and what the future holds for the National Building Arts Center. And joining me in studio to talk about it are Michael Allen. He's president of the board of directors for the National Building Arts Center. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Hi. And also we have Emery Cox, librarian at the National Building Arts Center. Hi, Emery. Hi. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I first want to express my condolences at the loss of Larry Giles. He he really sounded like a, a force. Is that a way to describe him, Emery? Oh, absolutely. Um, just just his presence, um, his intellect, um, everything about him was was almost superhuman somehow. Um, but at the same time, he was very personable. Like, don't get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Michael. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch in their obituary termed Larry Giles as the man who saved St. Louis. So if you could take us back to how he got his start in the architectural salvaging business and how he saved St. Louis. Yeah, I think for a salvager, his his sort of roots are a lot more um, holistic and, and vast. He didn't just take pieces of buildings uh, and, and save them. He really got involved in the movement in the early uh, 70s to preserve entire neighborhoods after a tour of duty in uh, Vietnam and involvement in the anti-Vietnam War uh, movement, uh, he joined other veterans in the Soulard neighborhood where he quickly went to work um, rehabbing houses. He had a company with some other partners that, um, you know, bought houses for cheap, sometimes up to, you know, $1, $100, and got them into the hands of other rehabbers and rehabbed a few uh, themselves. But Really, you know, what Larry saw was this gap around salvaging materials from demolitions. Early on, that looked like, you know, a transfer to these rehabbers, the pocket doors and mantles that they needed to restore their beautiful homes. But increasingly, there was um, larger material, entire building facades, entire buildings that were just being thrown into the trash heap by the city. And nobody really had the stamina or skill set to take that on. And you know, Larry hadn't proven that. He just decided he'd become that person. So he just he just did it. He, he just like, did it. And he, and what and you said like whole facades. What what kind of buildings are we talking about? And where in what parts of the city? Oh, all all over the city, East St. Louis, Chicago, and yeah. now even New York. But um, you know, buildings downtown, big office buildings like the Title Guarantee, um, movie theaters like the Ambassador Theater downtown or the Granada in South St. Louis. Uh, and, you know, one of his last big projects was the Century Building in 2004 downtown. But um, And then just on this block, we have the Wagner Mortuary, which was right next door to the Continental Building. We have the entire elevation, front elevation of that building. So, 
you know, heroic stuff and things that um, have not, you know, tasks that have not been surpassed nationally by any other salvager or salvage expert. No, nobody collected, you know, entire systems or facades. Everybody took the pieces that were easy to get to that had the most sort of ornamental flair. Mm-hmm. But Larry wanted to try to keep it all if possible. So how did he develop the techniques or even know the techniques to do that kind of salvaging? Well, I mean, he had a background in uh, mechanics. He was <laughs> he worked on cars. His uncle was a uh, raced on the dirt track, the car called the Midget Car. So he was kind of a gearhead who had some you know real comfort with tools. But when it came to the the work with buildings, he all, in the end ended up making you know his own custom chisels, specifying the kind of you know uh, standards for the pneumatic tools he needed for these jobs. You know tools that nobody else in the country has <laughs> still or did still it, yeah wow i mean these aren't patented but <laughs> they're, they're no, nobody else was doing this and other salvagers you know definitely do good work but you know you you'd, i've as a preservationist see what they do versus how larry uh did it you know and it's apples and oranges they're using conventional tools and sometimes sadly chipping or breaking pieces mm-hmm. larry was so meticulous because he created you know, custom methods and custom tools. Right. So that's, I was actually want to know, learn a little bit more about that because he developed his own salvaging techniques. Um, what, what did this allow him to save that somebody, Emery, who, who isn't, uh, who is using more traditional tools or who maybe doesn't have that kind of uh, mechanical know-how, um, what does it allow him to do? Ooh, um, that might be more of a Michael question, actually. <laughs> I'm happy to defer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it. in some cases it's, it was a question of speed as well as material. Um, like, for instance, in the Century Building where um, activists were trying to stop the demolition and they decided uh, the, the developers were going to take down the corners of this building in the middle of the night and Larry's like two-month salvage schedule became like a four-week scheduled to remove an entire, um, you know, 30 plus foot high marble arch and other building materials. So his methods, you know, allowed for doing that all safely, not damaging the material and doing it on this crazy expedited time schedule while the building was literally falling down above him. I mean, he's on the ground working, working on this arch and they're still every day chipping away at those upper floors. Oh, my God. Was, there was a possibility that he could have, like, been seriously injured then, it sounds like, or in many of these cases. Some people have in the past. Uh, one of the um, buildings that we have stuff from is the Chicago uh, Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. and a man died in that, a preservationist, uh, when the building collapsed. Wow. Wow. Oh, I have just been told that we have a picture um, of uh, that you took, Michael, actually, of Larry perched on that Century Building. Uh, it's on our website, stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. Um, and I also want to take a moment to say, um, if anybody was acquainted with Larry Giles, who's not in this room, um, what was your most strike? What did you find most striking about him as a person and as a professional? You can join our conversation by giving us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at stlpr.org. Um, so I want to get to the National Building Arts Center. So, Michael, I understand that in the early 1980s, Giles grew from just having his business um, to starting a path toward a kind of architectural museum. What inspired that? 
Well, uh, he was inspired by uh, the work of Charles Peterson, who had been the historian who inventoried all of the buildings demolished for the Gateway Arch and had proposed a museum collection at the Arch site um, based on this you know, unparalleled, unprecedented collection of cast iron historic architecture. That was in the Saarinen plan. It eventually fell by the wayside as the Park Service decided not to fund it. And Peterson ended up creating a very tiny architectural museum at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Larry wanted the full throttle version of that. And especially as he was seeing, it, it wasn't just this urban renewal period. You know, in his own days in the 70s and 80s, as some neighborhoods like Soulard and Lafayette Square were being put back together, other parts of the city like downtown and North City were losing entire areas still. Um, so he said, you know, this museum idea is as relevant as ever, and the material is just literally being carted away daily. Right. So uh, we could do something even more comprehensive that isn't just the riverfront, but basically the entire story of the architectural heritage of St. Louis, and then eventually he pushed beyond that to a national collection and took on jobs in New York, Chicago, and then in recent years developed this long-term relationship with the Brooklyn Museum, which has deaccessioned a lot of its architectural artifacts to the National Building Arts Center. Wow. So he... Um he originally, that wasn't originally in Sage, though, that when he first started out. No, I mean, originally it was uh, in Soulard in a warehouse that uh, where B-Works is now located that he meticulously restored in his way, you know, um, that was supposed to be a depot for, you know, the shop he kept on Sydney Street. He really, you know, he used to have like a, you could see Larry Giles in a storefront. You could just walk in and buy something. Hmm. Then as he, you know, entire building facades don't really sell off the shelf that easily, uh, he needed one warehouse, then another over on 39th Street in, in the Botanical Heights area. Uh, then he started storing stuff in random yards that, you know, people would let him. He, he, you know, after the century building material came in, he just was maxed out and found this uh, uh, abandoned steel foundry, the Sterling Steel Casting Site in Sage, um, which was big enough to hold the collection and then some, and to grow the collection, most right. importantly. Most importantly. We're going to get to that in a minute. I, I am curious, though, Emery, you, you both worked with him very closely and knew him very well. What do you think made him so passionate about his work? Hmm. He was doing things that uh, that no one else wa was taking taking care of. So maybe he he kind of he kind of felt that uh, you know I I'm the only one who can do this, and it's kind of my responsibility. Um, there was also, I think, some uh, just personality wise, uh, some inspiration from his childhood when he uh, said that his grandfather would take him around town and point out buildings. And then later he saw the buildings coming down and wanted to kind of collect those and preserve those. So he had this historical connection and a familial connection as well of his grandfather, like pointed out why this was also significant. Oh yeah, it was it was there from the beginning, I guess. Yeah. And for you Larry, what kind of a friend? Sorry, for you Michael, what kind of a friend was Larry? Oh, a, a very very close friend and yeah. and somebody who's um you know, mind uh, reached me in many ways, not just architecture and history, but um, you know, politics, literature, art, um he got me into the dirt track racing. <laughs> we would go on adventures and explore, you know, abandoned coal mines and ruins we would find, um, travel together to New York. Um, we had been talking in recent weeks uh, about going to Vietnam. Oh, wow. So he could return and see Vietnam not as a soldier but as a gentle human being. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, oh. it just I, one thing that uh, sticks out is 
he came to my wedding, which was during the pandemic. And, you know, rather than talk about, you probably think we're talking about terracotta and, and, and cast iron, but instead he um, recites a rap from the radical hip hop group, The Last Poets, from memory oh in a discussion, and then decides as a, to gift on the spot this wedding present, which is the socialist thought and practice, which is the English translation of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia's theoretical journal. My wife is, was born in Yugoslavia when it was still Yugoslavia. So, you know. Wow. So he, he just had an omnivorous mind. It's not just the building mind. guy to me. He's just, <laughs> no. he's kind of like crazy genius um yeah. <laughs> and just the kind of friend who would who would listen and, and learn about what people were into and always be s coming up with a suggestion sending you a link you know showing you an event he heard about or a book that he had had, had seen you know that's incredible uh, minds like that are rare i think um and if you're just joining us uh, we're discussing the memory and legacy of larry giles founder of the national building arts center Giles died last month, and joining us to talk about their friend and colleagues are uh, Michael Allen, president of the board of directors for the National Building Arts Center, and Emery Cox, the librarian of the National Arts Center. Um, Emery, you first got involved with the Building Arts Center, National Building Arts Center, in 2016. You were first a volunteer. How did you transition to being librarian, being a paid employee? What drew you to this? Well, um... Well, what drew me to it, I, I guess, um, maybe it's a personality thing, but just kind of bringing order to the chaos and, and describing everything. There's, there's just so many materials. Um, we have hundreds of thousands of items, uh, from print items to artifacts and stuff. But um, I, guess, uh, I guess Larry liked what I was doing. I had been kind of doing uh, some book cataloging um, for the volunteer basis, and uh, he wanted me to work on other projects and make it a more regular thing. And it's developed into a passion? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely a passion. Yeah. I, ca I can't like, I can't just look at a building and see something, I, I see features now. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, so tell me, since you are there every day, this place is massive. Was it 13 or 14 acres? Is that what you said, Michael? Uh, 15. Uh, 15 <laughs> acres. So Emery, can you give us a sense of the scope and the range of the collection? Oh, it's it's truly national. Um, it as Michael mentioned, we started out kind of with a bunch of St. Louis stuff, um, but then the artifacts have branched out to. Um, I think there's some stuff from Los Angeles and Chicago and New York. Mm. Um, but then the for the print library, um, it's it's actually international in scope. Um, we have a lot of treatises on, you know, classical architecture and European architecture and, you know, even also um, in, into some Asian architecture too and uh, uh, materials on engineering, uh, mining, just all the steps um, from, from, uh, from labor all the way to the built environment, architecture and all. And, and now people can't just go and visit the site, right? Um, it's not uh, open to the public per se, um, but I understand you can make an appointment to go. Um, d is that that's accurate? You can, if you want to go see everything, you can make an appointment. Yeah, um, feel free to contact us. Um, the The website is uh, nationalbuildingarts.org, arts with an S, and uh, you'll find a link to um, my email under the. Uh, research library page. And we'll be sure to include that also on our website. So are there plans for making this amazing collection um, more accessible to the public? Definitely. I mean, I think we shouldn't um, omit the fact that, you know, Larry had already taken this from, you know, 
you know, just in the last few years, something that was a complete, you know, unlisted address of a project to something that has a librarian who you can contact for an appointment. And several scholars have come in to work on uh, book projects, everything from the monograph on the Chicago Wrigley Building to the history of terracotta in, in Milwaukee. So it is, it's already up and running, and um, the, the one day a week you can make an appointment to come is invaluable for scholars, but we hope to grow that to you know, five to seven days a week in the near future. Our task now is to take what Larry, you know, Larry got us to a really high level of, of advancement and operation. I mean, a library with books on shelves and the artifacts in a manner where, you know, they're not annotated yet, but you can really look and interact with a lot of the collection in ways that weren't possible when they are crammed into his warehouses on this side of the river. Um, but we, we really hope that public access is, is something that's achievable in the next year or so. You know, at least one day a week where, in addition to the library, there might be a docent-led tour or other way to, to see the collection um, and then grow it from there. And the goal being just to give people an appreciation and um, education about architecture. About architecture, about the collection, um, and also the foundry itself, which is one of the rare projects in, in the U.S. right now where anyone is preserving a historic gray iron steel foundry as it is with every building. And we have all of the material for the company, too. So um, that's a pretty unusual uh, operation, you know, a little different than like Bob Castle's Cement Land, but kind of on the same page of these are, these are vanishing resources. So, I mean, I think it's really a, true to Larry's um, passion that he chose not only to find a site where this collection could, could breathe and spread out, but in that act also preserve something that would have been torn down. I mean, it was going to be torn down, this foundry. So. Wow. Um, we have, yeah, he also saved the foundry. That's yes. true. That's, I just I just picked up on the irony there, yes. Um, we, we do have a couple of people who have tweeted to us. Um, we received um, one tweet from Reese uh, who says, I was over there at the National Building Arts Center many years ago and tried to buy some of the lion figures from, from Giles because I didn't know it was an architectural museum type place. I did not come back with any lions. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we Sounds also, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and also we received some wonderful photos from listeners on Twitter this morning. Um, Twitter user Torcho sent us a photo of a Scruggs, Vandervert, and Barney plaque um, that he gave to Larry last year. Um, that's an old St. Louis department store. Michael, um, why do people regularly just bring treasures over to the center? Sometimes. I mean, we're known as a place where something like a plaque, you know, not a museum's not going to take that. Most people won't take that. An antique dealer might give you uh, 50 bucks for it. But, you know, it, everyone who knows that's priceless might come to us. And certainly wreckers. I mean, Larry had a great rapport with demolition contractors, even though he opposed demolition. And he really didn't like to have to do this work. But they knew he would care about certain pieces and, you know, he could barter or buy pieces, even if he wasn't the salvage, you know, guy. If someone else was, they would bring something by knowing it probably should be in Larry's collection. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then, you know, that snowballed into this national thing where, like, the Brooklyn Museum came to us. Like, oh, you're the people who collect these materials. Do you want all of New York's treasures? Which is, we don't which have is space really for amazing. Them. Yeah. We uh, have more New York than New York does now. <laughs> that's kind of crazy, actually. And moving forward, um, Emery, do you have a sense for how, how the center will continue to grow and develop? 
Um, I, th- I think we hope to have, um, like Michael said, a uh, at some time where the public can definitely just come in. And um, the main foundry building is uh, slated to be the future exhibition hall. So we'll have um, some stuff hopefully out of the crates and uh, and where you can see like entire building facades. Perhaps uh, we have the instructions to reconstruct them. It's a little mind blowing to figure to to imagine walking into a place and then seeing a building facade. Um, so, and then what about um, contracting or discussions with other cities that also are interested in historic preservation? Is there any discussion around that, Michael? Certainly. I mean, I think we never had um, gotten to a point where any of our policies were formalized. Um, but as we move forward and, and formalize accession policies, I think we'll be able to. Uh, offer uh, cities, developers, you know, anybody listening right now, <laughs> an opportunity to to gift something if they think it really belongs in our collection, and we think the same. You know, obviously we're gonna have to fill Larry's shoes in terms of somebody who can <laughs> can do all that physical work. Wow, and yeah, that's that's a tough job. I'd say uh, tall shoes or big shoes to fill, yeah. rather. Um, Emery, do you get inquiries from people who are interested in researching in the collection? If so, what what kind? What are people interested in? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I th- I think we we heard about like uh, the terracotta researchers and and that's been uh, that's been a big area like which has led to publication of books, um, but we've also had people. Um, uh, researching recently um, some theaters in the area, and um, in particular the uh, Scorus brothers. Uh, they were St. Louis theater magnates um, back in the day, and uh, we happen to have archives uh, that that deal with their work. It's incredible. Um, my finally, I, I really would like to hear from both of you about how you hope to carry on Michael's. Uh, carry on Giles' legacy. And Michael, I wanted to start with you. Are there any particular projects or ideas that you're focused on right now as board president? Well, I mean, I, th- I think foremost is bringing the Statue of Liberty to St. Louis, not the actual statue <laughs> and not the replica that France is gifting. But there's a um, one-third scale um, replica that was on top of a warehouse in Manhattan that is in the parking lot of the Brooklyn Museum that has already you know, been pledged to us and Larry had built the base to the actual specs of this conservation plan. And it's just awaiting the statue to go atop that. So that's our first thing is to finish this project Larry started to bring the Statue of Liberty replica to St. Louis where it'll face the Gateway Arch. And there's a, lots of conversations about American ideals and our future we can have in that space. Um, in addition, it really gives the foundry you know, an iconic sort of uh, mark. Right. But I think the the number one goal beyond that very specific project really is public access and and getting people in to use the library and getting the site in a condition where there are more tours, um, you know. And then we also have projects, you know, long term research projects around the collection, like a catalog of cast iron with critical and scholarly essays, um, books on that could come out of the the, the project. I'd like to see, you know. Um, residency programs for scholars and even artists. We've had a lot of artists who have done work with the collection, um, you know, and, and exhibited all over the country. So, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, like to artists and, and certain kinds of scholars, this place is legend. While the general public might not even know what it is, it's like, you know, yeah. there's some people who like just know this. And when Larry's death was, you know, first in the news, just flooded with like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. Yeah. Uh, Whereas a lot of St. Louisans probably are hearing about it for the first time today. 
sadly but all yeah. are welcome so yeah. no it's really <laughs> we'll cool work, we'll work with anyone so you've got a laundry list i'd say of things you want to do what about you emory oh um to, well i i would like to help you know however i can in those projects and um a, i think a big part of that is just kind of figuring out um not just figuring out what we have but uh cataloging and inventorying that stuff and kind of getting um, an idea out to the public as to uh, what resources are even there. Great. Well, um, unfortunately, we have to stop this conversation. I, I want to thank you both, Michael Allen and Emery Cox, for joining us today to talk about the memory of Larry Giles and his legacy at the National Building Arts Center. Um, I also want to mention that there's going to be a memorial program uh, program honoring Larry Giles on Saturday, August 7th at the National Building Arts Center in Sauget. We have more information about that late afternoon event on our website. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.